This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 87th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Discover New Watering Holes and Ecosystem Partners. I'm joined by Pamela Slim. She is the author of The Widest Net, Unlock Untapped Markets, and Discover New Customers Right in Front of You. The publisher is McGraw-Hill. Pamela is an author, community builder, business coach, and former director of training and development at Barclays Global Investors. Among her accomplishments is partnering with author Susan Cain to build and launch The Quiet Revolution. Among her previous books is Escape from Cubicle Nation, From Corporate Prisoner to Thriving Entrepreneur. Love that title. Welcome to the show, Pamela. Thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here. Great. So let's let's start with a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Yeah. So probably the easiest way to describe the book is I've been in business for about 25 years. The first 10 as a management consultant, and this was pre-social media um, when everything was referral. And then about the last 15 years as a startup coach for for entrepreneurs that are either starting or scaling businesses. And one of the things I notice is the way that we usually teach people about building a business and marketing is what I call the empire culture, where it's just all about centering yourself, speaking louder, sometimes bashing the competition and trying to attract everybody to you. What I've actually found in my experience is what creates the strongest businesses is in looking for an ecosystem of people, so that would be peers and partners, other service providers 
who are serving the same client, where together you can really band together and solve the, the, the core problem of your clients. In doing this and really strengthening the entire ecosystem, it is the most natural way that I have found works very well with my clients in order to build a strong referral business. So the widest net basically helps you understand the ecosystem surrounding your ideal customers and then to build really good relationships with the people who you can build, be referral partners with. Well, I, I like that model a lot. In fact, my, my newest book, Blah, 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 A Snarky Guide Office Lingo, I did with 50 contributors. So I was looking into the ecosystem. And uh, speaking of empire builders in an earlier era, uh, here in St. Paul, we have someone, James Hill, who was the empire builder. That was his name, uh, built the railroads. Um, you know, I was once asked if I was a relative of his, and I asked if only since his his very large mansion on Summit Avenue is <laughs> quite the sight. Uh, speaking of, of rich people and, and CEOs and leaders, in 2019, as I'm sure you know, the business roundtable moved from what had previously been the uh, shareholder model for mm. how you added value and who you're supposed to bring that to, to the stakeholder val- focus instead, which was trying to really broaden it to communities and to country, uh, much more emphasis on employees and customers beyond just stockholders. Uh, what do you think about that move? Do you think it has real promise? Uh, what's the likelihood that these CEOs and others actually practice that version of capitalism? Well, what a wonderful idea. And you're so right to separate it in two separate parts. <laughs> because <laughs> for the first, I will say, it warms my heart as somebody who loves community. My husband and I have a small business learning lab right in the middle of Main Street here in Mesa, Arizona, where we partner with all kinds of folks, with our local city government, with Arizona State University, with people that are working in neighborhoods, with our Main Street you know, entrepreneurs. And really what we found in doing that, it really looking, as you said, at, at the stakeholders, everybody's well-being in the overall model, it helps people to make better decisions, to have a, a better focus, and to really have more market opportunities. And I've been, in, in the, my time as a management consultant for the first 10 years of my business, I, I would always joke that if you have more than one person together, you have a dysfunctional organization. So I was forever employed. <laughs> and <laughs> what I know from working in the inside for so many years is that when it comes down to it, when, when senior leadership uh, or the board is just looking for their own financial well-being, it's not something that creates a dynamic company culture. It's not something that creates the kind of place where people want to be. And if you really want to be a top competitive company, I think it's essential that you're really having a broader point of view. So agree with all that. As for the second part, will folks do it? Those are some pretty difficult habits to break. And when we look at systems in place to encourage the short-term quarter, end of quarter results, uh, let's say I have a bit of healthy skepticism. But that's wrapped in a blanket of hope (laughs) that we can change a little. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think I would come out basically the same place. Uh, I know millennials might help drive this a bit because they're really talking about wanting to be at companies that are values-based um, and concerned about the environment and other things, for instance. Uh, so that would be fabulous. But I, I do remember we had some of the same hopes that uh, baby boomers would bring reforms. 
And uh, not long ago, David Brooks made the quip, well, what do we really get to the end from the baby boomers and the counter-revolution in the 1960s? He said, well, maybe all we really got in the end was Whole Foods. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, moving on to the, one of the things that really attracted me about your book was the emphasis on small businesses. A lot of business books tend to focus on uh, big corporate accounts and, and opportunities to be consultants for them. And those are the kind of models. But in your case, um, you're really talking about a range of businesses, but most definitely including uh, smaller businesses. And even beyond that, you're bringing in Native American, Black, uh, Latinx, Asian, disabled, LGBTQ entrepreneurs. So that is indeed a much wider net. And I'm wondering what are the similarities and the unique differences and challenges that each of those communities I've just mentioned uh, might face. Well, yeah, I think in, in the the bigger context, just about small business in general. One one of the things I'm, it's definitely where my heart and my passion is. I just find it's the place in which we can make the most um, kind of innovative change. And I think some 2018 studies from the Small Business Administration show that 99.7% of all new jobs are started by small businesses. So that was kind of yeah. a, a, a amazing statistic for me. So it, it re- we, we tend to focus on the big companies, but, but then of course, uh, really where a lot of movement is happening is in small business. Um, what was that statistic one more time? That's it, it's quite 99.7% of all new jobs are started by small business and they contribute 53% of all non-farm U.S. GDP gross domestic product. Um, I'll try to dig out that study. I know I've, I've shared it before, but it really just reinforced for me that there really it is such a driver of the economy. And in terms of working with different communities, my... Uh, First of all, I never speak on behalf of a community. So, you know, I, sure. but my husband is a Navajo entrepreneur. He ran a heavy equipment construction business for many years. And so, one of the things that we found, and one of the reasons why we started our learning lab here, is there is so much talent that is in the market in our community. And we, can just get stuck with featuring the same kind of partners, the same kind of experts that tend to look like you and me, a little bit more like you, right, than me. Yes, so we know yes. male experts are often, you know, featured more for white males, white females maybe coming in a close second. It, it actually does not represent the tremendous talent and leadership that exists in the community. And one of the, so that was really one of the driving forces we had is just to highlight the leadership that exists and is rarely seen within those communities. Folks, you know, have told us things like um, it's so wonderful to be able to really like design and create programs from the ground up with more of their unique perspective or cultural context in mind. Right. And that can be everything from kind of worldviews, how people connect. Also things like helping people understand what is the lived experience of people when they might be walking down the street. You know, do they feel safe? Do people react to them differently based on the way that they look? Um, so what we found in doing five years of work here in Main Street is there is so much innovation, collaboration, and opportunity that comes when we really just embrace the totality of the market as opposed to folks that might look just like ourselves. Sure. No, I was just on a call the other day, a Zoom call, 11 of us, three women. And one of the guys uh, from Europe at one point says, 
women and other minorities. And when he got done, I said, um, excuse me, uh, first of all, women are not the minority. They're the majority. And if you look around the world, white people are about 11% of the population, I believe, in declining. Yeah. I, I said, shouldn't we amend that? And he, he was stone-faced and said nothing. But two of the three women on the call uh, sent me a LinkedIn request within the minute. <laughs> it's it's helpful you know it's helpful to to speak up when when you hear something like that yeah it's all about just sharing the truth of um you know of what's happening in the marketplace well and broadening the perspective in my case i you know i've read a lot of business books as you might imagine over the years as i'm sure you have yeah i have rarely seen any references to the native american community in in any of them um yeah. and my family my family's from north dakota and my grandparents farm was abutting the three tribes uh, Indian reservation involving the Hidatsi and, and Mandan, for instance. Um, so I, I have a definite sensitivity to that, but boy, it's a, is it absent uh, in most business books. It's really true. Well, one of, one of the origin stories, as you know, that I tell in the book is in 2015, I did a 23-city tour. I called it the Unbook Tour with a little <laughs> nod to my friend Scott Stratton, who, who runs uh, Unmarketing and Unselling. And the intention was to be really checking in with places where I had done book tours before, um, groups of you know entrepreneurial communities. And it was just all across the U.S., uh, I went to was in Minnesota, in St. Paul, and you know South Dakota, as well as New York and San Francisco, all these different cities. And so I asked in the first city in Berkeley, California, how many people had ever seen a Native American business expert speak at a business conference on a business topic. And I asked that same question in all 23 cities. And at the end of the tour, only seven had, and four of those were from Vancouver, Canada. So what I knew from my being with my husband for so many years and going to conferences in hotel ballrooms that were filled with amazing Native American entrepreneurs is not that they didn't exist, but that the, there was invisibility. And yeah. that was one of the big drivers for the work we do here and also a joy in sharing the story. Because if people never see somebody in that role, they might have the erroneous opinion, first of all, that folks exist at all, which, believe it or not, people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have told my husband at different times, you know, different things, like not even realizing that Native folks were here, but also not realizing that they span the field of expertise from accountants to graphic designers, you know, insurance brokers, you name it. So I, I get great joy of highlighting that leadership wherever I can. Sure. So in the widest net, um, you know, there are lots of practical tips and advices and strategies to approach things. Uh, this part of the conversation might go on for a while, but I have no problem with that. Uh, maybe we could go top three, top five. I'm interested in some of the, the biggest problems or challenges that small businesses face. And then quite naturally, um, you know, some solutions, you know, you can't cover the whole book, but maybe a few highlights there you know, kind of a, a problem solution format on at least a couple of the real headliners of things that you think matter to small businesses or maybe where you've got a unique angle and, and solution to propose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the ways that I, I describe it, because I'm, a, I always say I'm an author practitioner. So sometimes that's I wish good, I could that's just, good, that's good. I, I could think of a, a pithy model in the shower and write a book about it the next week. But I, I am really bound by the work that I do with my clients. It's, it's how I learn. It's how I think up models. So in the overall model of the widest net, it really is a model with interconnecting steps that are about 10 of them that have a chapter to each. But if you look at that, really what the core work is, it's divided into three main sections. And it's answering the fundamental question, really, of the reason I built this book, which is that 
every single new client that I meet with, either if they're looking to start their business or if they've been in business and they're looking to grow into new markets, get very perplexed of knowing like, where do I find my customers? How can I, how can I expand my audience? You know, I know I want to move from a B2C to a B2B market, but I have no idea where to even start. And so that's, that's the, that core problem that this book is really built to address is what is a systematic way that you can approach that. The way the thirds come into play is in the first third, you have to really be defining what is that bigger problem or challenge that your business is solving, that your business is part of, and what is the foundation of your ethics and your values for the way that you're going to approach that work, which is another fundamental building block for you to understand how to connect with others. And then from there, how are you defining your um, your core audience or your ideal client in terms of a problem or challenge. So like in that foundation, I use the example in the book of Intuit, which we all know when we file our taxes or, or use sure. QuickBooks or something to do our accounting, their mission is power prosperity. And so in that, you can imagine there are so many things that, that a person would need to do in order to truly power prosperity. They need to have good money mindset, you know, to start out. They'd need to probably have bank accounts, retirement accounts. Um, they may need to hire a CPA. All of these things that they would need to do in addition to purchasing software from a company that can help them file their taxes or, you know, reconcile their books. So with that, if you understand and you're really framing your business, let's say you're a CPA and you want to, you know, reduce the stress of your clients who are constantly perplexed as to how much money is coming in, how much is going out, and how they can make good financial decisions, then with that definition of an ideal audience, you can automatically see how you would be connected with all of these other ecosystem partners like Intuit, right? If you wanted to have them as a sponsor for your podcast, you're naturally looking at places where people can be referring you. So the first, where the first part is about your foundation, the second part is about the strategic analysis of the ecosystem. And there really are places already where your ideal clients are looking for information and resolutions and sources of, of content to solve their problems. They're listening to podcasts, reading blogs, attending events, watching TED Talks, and they're using other products and services. And so that's just a natural place to go. Once you identify that, that's really the last third of the book, which is what's a very systematic and yet relational way that you can be building those relationships. I don't know what you find, but I, you know, I love people. I'll sit and talk to somebody in a park bench, you know, any day of the week. Not all of my clients are so comfortable. And there's a lot of business tactics we're taught that actually can feel quite aggressive for folks where people yeah. come on too strong at first and don't really take the time to build a relationship. So the third part is really about how do you really um, have a strategic approach to how you're making those connections and then eventually use automation and a lot of good business operations in order to scale your business. Sure. No, I, I would call that the predator versus the partner model. And uh, yeah, I love some that. People yep. do, some people do come on too strong and you just, I don't know, interacting with them, you just kind of get a chill because it, it's, it's so transactional. Yeah. Um, it just kind of makes you yeah. tense up, doesn't it? Like you automatically yeah. have that fight or flight. Like, what are you trying to sell me? You know, kind of backing away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, very, very much so. So speaking of that, I, I'm curious, first of all, kind of how you set up your unbook tour. That's fascinating in its own right. And where those audiences were in the events. But then I'm also interested, part two is, 
what kind of questions, if there's maybe a question or two that most bubbled up across those various cities, I'd be really curious to know what it is and how you answered it. Yeah. Well, I would, the, the, end, the, uh, the end book tour came up. I was sitting on my sister's porch in Lake Almanor, California, which is a beautiful place up north. And it was, we were on summer vacation and I was just staring out across the lake. And I knew I had little, little glimmers of the book that I wanted to write. But for some reason, it just struck me that day looking out at the lake. You know how that is sometimes when you're in nature, <laughs> things hit you a different sure. way. <laughs> uh, I just thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting? Instead of writing a book and then going on tour, what if I did the tour first to share the general idea and see what were the spots that people really found interesting? Ah, um, yeah. So that's, that was the, the core idea. And I'm a big social media person. I've been online since 2005 when I created my blog, Escape from Cubicle Nation. I love social media. I have a really big audience. So I just went on Facebook and I said, hey, this is my idea. Where should I go? And I kid you not, the answer thread for that Facebook post is how I began to make those connections. Now, I've, I have two other books out, Escape from Cubicle Nation and Body of Work. So I had done workshops and done book tours before. So I have, you know, big audiences in Atlanta and Chicago and New York, and I knew there were places where I would have people. But part of the fun, what I challenge myself to do, because I'm kind of a nerd this way, <laughs> is to sure. utilize every kind of community building tech kind of tactic and technique that I wanted to use in the book for the tour. So for example, in, in almost every place, instead of just renting a hotel, I look for partners that would be providing space. And so that was everything from Nancy Duarte's beautiful Silicon Valley studio. For those people who know Nancy Duarte's book, it's a really um, very well-respected high-end design studio that does uh, presentations in Silicon Valley to um, the the New York School of Design that I that hosted me when I went to New York, I was just looking for places where I had a connection with people or where I could reach out and make a new connection, looking for an overlap in the mission that they had and the mission sure. that I had. In 23 cities, I only had to rent a space once. And it was just because of timing and not having a certain space available. No, I think that's a that's a cool approach. And what kinds of uh, in that overlapping of mission, what kinds of questions uh, tend to come up or, or through you because it was a, a new question you hadn't had before? Any any place you want to take my question? Yeah, the probably the biggest thing that happened, and it was so interesting because it sort of lived up to the idea that I had for the tour. It was on the second stop of the tour, which is at Duarte, which was in Silicon Valley at the at Nancy Duarte's place. Somebody asked a question that was, um, I, I can't remember exactly how they asked it, but I was explaining in general this idea of an ecosystem and how it is that, you know, we are connected. And somebody just asked me to explain it further. So I opened up a flip chart and I drew a circle and I put your ideal customer in the center of that circle. And then I was drawing like spokes in a wheel saying there's general segments where we can look for these folks. Some might be in other service providers, others are government, you know, then we have our media hubs like podcasts. And I basically begin to flesh out the idea of the ecosystem wheel, which has become a very core part of the model, which I didn't think of describing it that way when I went into the tour. <laughs> so that's probably the thing that I found in doing this work with clients. And, you know, in the book, I feature a lot of work I've done with clients using this model. It's not enough to have a conceptual idea 
of the fact that, you know, yes, it would make sense to be partnering with a company that has literally millions of customers who might be also ideal customers for you. The core question is always, but how do I actually make that connection or how do I find them? And it really is driven by having your ideal customer in the center. And that's actually the best place for a lot of people to start is where you think of for the people you already love working with. If you ask them, what is your favorite podcast related to solving this kind of problem that we work on together, right? Or of all the, the conferences and events that you could go to when, when we can do live events, right? Of course, sure, but yes. which, which would be <laughs> the one, which is the one that often, again, events are the epitome of a watering hole because you can have all kinds of people in the audience that are ideal customers. You have fellow speakers. If you're a speaker there, that can be your great peer referral partners. And then often you have the sponsors of that conference, which is your your key to understanding some of the bigger companies that also invest within that market. Um, and so that really is, is what I found in implementing the method is to be as specific as possible. Um, but everything comes down to really, really understanding the bigger problem that your customer is trying to solve. And then I'll say to recognize and let it set aside your ego that you can't solve the entire thing yourself, no matter how fantastic you are. (laughs) Like we really do all need each other in solving the bigger problems that our customers have. I've never met anybody who could just work with one person and have everything resolved. Sure. Well, I just was reading a business book where someone tweaked the, the CEO's ego and said, I've created an organizational chart where you're in every box of uh, the flow chart because you you imagine you're going to be the hero and 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 pull it all off but of course you you can't possibly uh and I love the fact that you discovered some of these things while you were on the road and from the questions and the prompts uh I've always loved the the comment from Robert Frost no surprise for the writer no surprise for the reader mm. and uh in in that moment of discovery uh that, that that's great stuff I, I remember when I was doing presentations for, for Nationwide Insurance. One of my clients, they uh, said to me, we need to tape your presentation because the report's fine, but it's what you ad lib. <laughs> that is is the most fascinating. And uh, it was all the, that moment of, of discovery or just feeling inspired. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun that way. You mentioned in, in your book, um, Wes Keo and Seth Godin and designing the Alt-MBA, which I, I love the title of that as well. And you mentioned then, cohort-based courses. I'm wondering what those look like. If you could unpack that that term for us. Yeah. So Wes Ko, and thanks for pronouncing her name correctly, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I also had to clarify that. I really appreciate that. But uh, she is the co-founder now of Maven, which is a new startup with a also with a co-founder of Udemy and then another technical founder. And cohort-based courses are basically courses where it's very, very hands-on with the group of people who are going through the learning experience together. It's not a passive learning event where the instructor is just talking, everybody is taking notes and running off to do their own work in their own, you know, offices or homes. It's designing a learning experience so that the connection between the cohort members is an essential part of delivering that program. And in what is, I feel like the most meta <laughs> of all metas is I did, I featured Maven as the case study for developing and offering in the book because I, I've known Wes for a really long time and she's just an amazing thinker. And I knew that she would construct just an exceptional kind of learning environment. I'm, I'm now in a cohort with Maven where we're creating a course that will be about the method in this book 
in a cohort environment. And I'll tell you, we just started, we had our meet and greet last week. And it is so amazing. The kinds of people who were in that class are so interesting. People from, you know, senior directors within large companies to, you know, folks that have a, a small startup or a side hustle. And already the kinds of interesting connections that we've made has just been astounding. So I really feel like it's the future of learning all the research shows, which is disappointing for those people who have created online courses, but only about 6% of people actually go all the way through your typical yeah. online course. And it's, I always say you can sell them, but it doesn't mean you're actually delivering the change that people need. And do you find that, um, making it, uh, I don't know, live. I mean, what are ways to get that that 6% into a much better realm? Well, there's all kinds of things in their design, but it, it, it's everything from the technology tools that you use. So in their case, everything in their platform is really built around having really cool technology where you can just instantly, you know, break out into small groups. You have assignments where you have accountability to a smaller cohort within the larger class where you're actually responsible for, you know, presenting your, your class design as, you know, to your peers as part of like passing the cohort and passing the class. So there's everything from that shared accountability to the way that the general class design is structured where it's usually about two thirds of the time with a cohorts connecting and actually using a live example of what they're building and maybe just a third of the time where there's information to consume or even less. So I've been a lifelong, you know, professionally um, instructional designer. That's been a, a core part of work that I've done. And I'm already just so impressed to see the next level that they've gone uh, with cool. this particular course. Well, no, I, I love collaboration. I used to tell people, yes, I was captain of my high school soccer team, but I played center midfield. I got the ball and I passed it to the goal scorers, but um, not everybody has a collaboration mindset, unfortunately, which brings me maybe to my last question. You do mention in the book or go into some things to look out for and ways to approach when you are having a partner as an entrepreneur and what the, the landmines might be there. So maybe we'll, we'll wrap up with that question. Sure. I think you identified really almost in the way you asked the question, the first thing, and that's partnerships are not for everybody. I know I bring a strong point of view for people who really enjoy collaboration, who want to look at growing in more of a connected, interdependent way. That's not going to be for everybody, and that's okay. So yeah, you don't true. have to partner. You could absolutely just you know mainly focus on building a business a traditional way. The second thing is everything is really aligned with values. And even when you have that, one of the case studies I used in the book is my longtime client, Brian Shea, who partnered with, um, with one of his dear friends, Joelle. And what they found, even though they were really connected in values, even though they were really connected in the mission of what they were building together, thankfully, they did a test and they realized that they had slightly different goals in what they were trying to build. Brian wanted to build a little bit slower and more methodically. Joelle was about scaling, you know, using technology. So even when you have a good personal connection with people, even when you share values, a great partnership needs to be anchored also in a shared understanding of the approach to the business. My biggest word of advice is always just small steps. Start with something yeah. small, see how it is. And as my lawyer, Kyle Duran, will always say, everybody sign something. <laughs> Have a path out so that you can maintain <laughs> friendships in case it doesn't work. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's instrumental. Um, fabulous advice. Uh, thank you so much, Pamela. This has been great stuff. Uh, episode number 87, Discover New Watering Holes and Ecosystem Partners. Pam is the author of The Widest Net, 
unlock untapped markets, and discover new customers right in front of you. If you've enjoyed today's show, please get a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes either on my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or on the New Books Network. Just type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and you can see the other guests I've had over the past year and a half. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from someone I've never heard of named Sahil Lavingia, who said, make something people want, including making a company that people want to work for. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.